God is good. All the time. Have you ever really wanted to clap, but you may or may not have had a lit candle in one hand? <laughs> I'm so glad that you're here. Everything we know about Christmas comes from two New Testament sources. The first was a Greek physician by the name of Luke, and you've already met Matthew. Now, tradition tells us that Matthew lived longer than most of the other disciples. In fact, he lived to be about 60, which was really old back then. He read the Gospel of Mark. We know that because a good hunk of Mark is quoted verbatim in Matthew. And if Mark is about what Jesus did, Matthew is about what Jesus said. But Matthew and Luke gave us two incredible gifts. They gave us the Christmas narrative. They gave us the gift of story. I know at Christmas that we spend a lot of time on gifts. And I know that everything about American advertising pushes us to push money into the economy. But I want to tell you something. Gifts are just fine. But if you really want to give something meaningful, give somebody a story. They'll tell it for generations and it will be passed along. Christmas is a story, and it's incredible. I can imagine Matthew, about my age, sitting down, feeling the ping to write a gospel, and remembering all of the time that he spent with Jesus. Also, pulling the Old Testament into play. Because for Matthew, it was so important that people see Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. I love the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah said, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall rest upon his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. I think we all know how that plays out at Christmas time. But do we really understand how often that plays out in real time? Not just where Jesus put his feet on the ground, but in the places we put our feet on the ground. I would say most of us have a quintessential Christmas memory. As I get older, my memories are less like photographs in an album, and they're more like frappes. It's a whole bunch of memories all thrown into a blender, and I add ice and just kind of pour them out. The memories are clear, but it's really hard to tell which year they happened or to distinguish one year from the other. But my quintessential Christmas memory has me in a very specific place. Sunfield, Illinois. Suburb of the greater DuCoin area. Farmhouse. It was built by my grandpa Hal and my grandma Ines. Every year at Christmas, there are four adult children. Halene, Donna, Freddie, and Sue got together. Along with a dozen first cousins, of which I was one. As a child, I was utterly unremarkable in every conceivable way. I mean, if I tried out for a play, 
it was a non-speaking part, I was going to be a tree. <laughs> but I was the name bearer. Out of all 12 of my cousins, I was the only one who would retain the last name Bishop. And I felt connected to that family. I got to tell you, I'm so old, I remember when it used to be cold at Christmas. And I remember we would be at that farmhouse and we would beg to go outside and our parents would dress us. Those of you that grew up in the 60s and 70s, they didn't have like high tech warm stuff. Our stuff was bulky and not warm. And so they would dress us all up, put our hats on and we'd all walk out there and we'd play for six, maybe seven minutes before we were all freezing. And we'd all come back in and our parents would be so aggravated. They were all hoping we would have stayed out there till New Year's Eve. And in we come. I remember a huge red barn. I remember animals in the back. I remember an orchard. But when we got inside, that's where my memories get really vivid. I remember the way the smoke just sort of rolled in from the kitchen. And I remember the way... It smelled a combination of delicious food being made in a musty farmhouse. I remember hardwood floors that gave just a little bit if you bounced. I remember white plastered walls. And I remember the world's biggest fireplace. I mean, it was huge. And it was stocked full of split wood. And it just roared. And I, when I was a kid, I'd always look in there and try to imagine how Santa could get down that little bitty chimney. And then there was a tree. It wasn't a triangle tree like they have these days. It was a big rotund tree like Santa himself. And they had big lights on the tree of multicolors. It was absolutely covered with aluminum tinsel and strands and strings of popcorn that we made that very day. And all throughout the house, there were dishes like this, Christmas dishes. And they had various and sundry candy on them, some of the worst candy you've ever tasted. <laughs> Back in those days, they didn't wrap things individually because no one was concerned about being sanitary. They just put pieces of hard candy out. And you had no idea what they tasted like until you popped one in your mouth. But getting in them in your mouth was a little difficult because they were usually stuck together. So you get this big thing of horrible tasting hard candy and they're all stuck together. So you spend most of the day trying to break them off or trying to do that without chipping the thing. And sometimes you just couldn't get them off at all. And so you had to wait till nobody was looking, pick the whole glump up and just take a little crunch and then put it back. I remember the gifts underneath the tree. Though I can't really tell you, I remember hardly any gifts I ever received. My Aunt Floss, she bought me a single pair of polyester socks every year. I remember those. I never could tell if they were navy or black. And this morning I was putting on these socks and I had to hold them up to a bright light. I still can't tell if stuff's navy or black. I don't remember... Any gifts except the socks. But I remember how I felt loved. Part of a family. Safe. 
warm. And he shall be called wonderful. While most of my relatives stayed in uh, Sunfield, all I ever wanted was a home. And all I ever wanted was a place to call home. But Dad was a rolling stone. We were traveling Jesus people. I was born near Chicago, and then we moved to Buffalo, and then we moved to East Tennessee, and then we moved to Fort Worth, and then we moved back to Southern Illinois, and then we moved to San Antonio, and then we moved back to Southern Illinois, and then we moved to San Antonio again, and then we moved back to Southern Illinois. We were just always on the move. I wasn't the most resilient kid in the world, and Dad seemed to understand that we needed a place and every year it seemed, even though often he had next to no money, we, we were in ministry in those days, he would find a way to get us all back to Sunfield. And sometimes you had to be strategic about the trips if you didn't have any money. If you can just afford the gas, you're going to have to be pretty strategic. I remember sometimes we traveled at night because sleeping kids don't eat or argue. But I remember you're going to have to eat once and... We were in Arkansas, somewhere in Arkansas, and Dad always said, stop at the restaurants where there's lots of cars. They're the best. And so there must have been a lot of cars at a Tasty World restaurant. Where they used to be companions to Days Inn motels, and we stopped at the Tasty World to eat our meal. I guess the prices were higher than Dad anticipated. And when the waitress came up and asked what we'd like to drink, Dad said, we're just going to have to get water. I don't know why that broke my heart, but I do know it had been a really tough year. And I knew we were headed home, and it just felt like that somehow you shouldn't have to drink water in Arkansas. But it was the early 70s, and every kid in America was on the suck it up and shut up tour. And you just put a smile on your face and went on. I, I suppose the waitress had seen the disappointment, and she'd also see me perk back up. Well, the waitress came out with a pitcher, and she poured it in all of our glasses, and I reached for my glass, and I put it up to my mouth, and it wasn't water at all. It was team. Now, those of you that are young, team is like Sprite's grandfather. And team was not the best-tasting soda in the world, unless you're expecting Arkansas water. It was marvelous. I have never tasted anything in my life that tasted better than that team back in those days. Well, we were about halfway through the meal, and we drilled all the team. And this was back in the days where there was no such thing as free refills. It's like you died and went to Europe. And so there's no refills. The waitress comes back up, and she looks at us, and she said, Would you like another pitcher of water? And she looked at me, and she winked. And she brought back another picture of team. I remember almost no Christmas gifts from my childhood. But if you ask me to this day what's the best gift I've ever received, I would tell you it was a picture of team in a restaurant in Arkansas. Delivered by a waitress we didn't know and would never see again. 
And sometimes to this day I wonder if baby Jesus on that holy night didn't turn the water into team for a little boy coming home for Christmas. And he shall be called Counselor. Well, I've got to tell you, it wasn't just the farm we came home to. No, no, no. We went to the Christmas program at the Sunfield Methodist Church. Now, it was the Sunfield Methodist Church until 1968 when it became the Sunfield United Methodist Church. And this year it became Sunfield Community Church. But no one really cares about Methodist politics. The sanctuary held about 100. It's gone now. It held about 100. Christmas programs, 125. Maybe 122 related to me. And I remember the program so well. It would start with kids reciting things. So little bitty kids in the classes, they would all recite stuff. You say, well, what kind of stuff did they recite? Stuff like this. North, south, east, and west, I like the Christmas tree the best. High-end stuff. And the kids would do their recitations as their parents and grandparents had done before them. And then we'd sing, and then somebody would come out and sing, and if it was good, you clapped, and if it was terrible, you clapped louder because we're all related and we wanted to support them. And then came the program, the cradle, the cross, and the crown. It was performed each year to an ever-deteriorating soundtrack. People didn't have to speak, you just acted it out. And I loved it because it wasn't just about birth. It was also about Jesus dying for our sins. And it was about the resurrection. And it was about Jesus being crowned. It was the whole gospel in like 30 minutes. And my favorite part had to do with a cardboard star wrapped in aluminum. They strung a wire from the back of the church all the way to the front. And in the very back of the church was a star. And they had a hole through it. And there was a little loop on top that sat around the wire. And then they punched a little hole here and attached a fishing line to it. And so when the time was right, one of my relatives had a little Zebco. And he'd start reeling the star in from the back. While about eight people held flashlights on it. And we saw it in all of its glory. Behind the star came Mary and Joseph and the baby. Normally, whichever couple in the community had the most recent baby. They were Mary and Joseph. And it didn't really matter if the baby was a boy or a girl, but you hoped that somebody had a baby every two or three years. You didn't want them coming down with a sixth grader. <laughs> Mary and Joseph would come in, and then they would move into the crucifixion. And I couldn't believe what Jesus did for us. And then they got to the crown. The resurrection and then the crown. Now back in those days, every church in America, no matter if the church was rich or poor, had huge, very formal chairs up front. There were two of them. How many of you remember this? They were huge, very formal. And I always wondered why they were there. And I finally decided just in case a European monarch ever comes to visit, boom, they would have a place to sit. And so they would move one of those chairs to the middle. One of my relatives would sit in the chair playing the part of Jesus. Had a white robe on. There would be like gold stuff all over them. They had to put a crown on him. They shine like every flashlight in Sunfield would shine on him. It was incredible to see. But then the reel-to-reel -reel soundtrack. 
They played Handel's Messiah. I'd never heard music like that. I mean, every time I went to Grandma's, she wasn't playing Handel's Messiah. She was playing George and Tammy. I got to tell you, Handel's Messiah was something else. He shall reign forever and ever. And I mean, I was just overwhelmed. It was the greatest thing ever. And he shall be called Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. A Father who sticks around. Wouldn't that be something? I didn't know my grandpas. My grandpa, Max, lived in Tamaro, worked for the Illinois Central Railroad. And what Max loved to do was dress up, go to St. Louis, and he was a dancer. Loved the ballroom dance. My other grandpa's name was Hal. He ran a tavern. And he bought a farm later in his life. And every picture I have of him, he's in overalls. I don't know what Hal enjoyed doing, but it wasn't dressing up, going to St. Louis and ballroom dancing, I assure you. I didn't know either of them. Maybe that's why when my grandkids were born, they became so important to me. And it became so important that I knew them and that they knew me. For all of you that have had new grandkids or children or great-grandkids this year, I'm so happy for you. It's the most marvelous thing ever. I truly consider being a grandparent one of the few things in life that didn't end up being overrated. And it's just terrific. I remember when Maddox, our first, was getting ready to be born. Melissa stopped me and she said, Shane, what are you going to have the grandkids call you? I said, well, what are they going to call you? She looked at me and she said, Nana. I said, I think I'll have them call me the great and mighty Papa. And that's what we went with. And they called me the great and mighty Papa until Mabry, my granddaughter, turned about eight or nine. And she started calling me the great and mighty Pickle. And now they're all brooding teenagers. And I'm the great and mighty, what's up, bruh? Well, when the kids were little, four, three, two, the new one was still a baby, so I didn't have to worry about him. I was in Israel, and I was in Bethlehem, and I thought, I need to get him gifts. But I'm not good at gifts. I got nothing when it comes to gifts. And so I, I, I was thinking, what am I going to do? The trip's about to be over. We're in Bethlehem, and all of a sudden we're on the bus, and some guy beats on the door, and he's selling stuff, and he holds up this camel. And he yells, Three for ten dollar. And I'm thinking, that is straight up my price range. <laughs> I took a look at the camel, got out, took a look, made some quick analysis. Solid wood, machine cut, made in China, shipped to Bethlehem. Win. <laughs> I got out of the bus and he saw I was in charge. Because I had a button on that said, this dude's in charge. And he looked at me and he said, words I'll never forget. Three for ten dollars, but you, very good looking man, for you, three for five dollars. So! So I picked up three of these bad boys. Well, I got home, 
And I thought, I need to make this special. I need to make this special. So I lined Maddox and Eli and Mabry up, and I told them the story of Jesus. And I told them that Papa was in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And I told them about the wise men. And I told them about him riding in on camels. And I said, while I was in Bethlehem, I got something very special for you. And I handed Maddox his camel. And I handed Eli his camel. And I handed Mabry her camel. Maddox looked at the camel, looked at me, looked at the camel and said, we'll keep these at your house and walked off. And then Eli gave me his, and Mabry gave me hers, and we had three additions to our nativity set. (laughs) Nativity sets. When I see nativity sets, they all look great from a distance. I don't know about you all, but our nativity sets, the closer you got to them, the bigger mess they were. First of all, when I was young, nativity sets were expensive. And people who made nativity sets made them out of stuff that breaks. Why? Because they are smart. There was no plastic nativity things back then, man. Everything broke. And if you break stuff, you're going to have to improvise. I remember every move we made, it seemed like somebody dropped a box out of the U-Haul, and it always had the nativity set in it. Crunch. Something was always going down. I remember throughout my life, what messes the, material, the nativity characters were. I remember a one-eared donkey. I remember a three-legged camel. I remember a shepherd whose arm broke off with, that held the staff. And we would put the shepherd up, and then we would just lay the hand and the staff beside him. I remember a wise man who was supposed to be bearing gifts of gold. But the gold broke off. We had no idea where it was. He just was there with no gift to bring per rumpa-pum-pum. I remember my grandma, Helen, probably a year before she died, she bought me and her dart guns for Christmas. The old-style dart guns that are spring-loaded came out at about 80 miles an hour. They've outlawed them now because they kill modern kids. But uh, (laughs) me and grandma, man, we are... We are absolutely drilling each other all afternoon. I mean, we're Starsky and Hutchin all afternoon. Every time somebody goes, we're shooting at each other. I remember once, Grandma came out, and she had white, poofy hair. And she came out, and there were two darts stuck in her hair. (laughs) And you might say, you were shooting at your grandma's hair? No, I was shooting at her glasses. I was trying to stick one of those things right in her glasses, but she wouldn't stand still. And I remember she shot at me, and I moved, and she hit Joseph. And Joseph fell to the ground and was summarily decapitated by my grandmother. (laughs) And then we had to glue his head back on. And we didn't really glue it on very well, so he spent the whole rest of his life like this. (laughs) When I think about those nativity scenes growing up, they were so beat up, broken glued back together. We were always dropping something or losing something and adding something else. My nativity scene at home right now does have an alligator. (laughs) And I look closely, banged up, glued up, taped up. 
shattered, put back together, shattered again. I can't help but thinking how much those nativity sets look like us. Oh, I see the Christmas pictures. We all look terrific, don't we? We just look terrific, like Ward and June and Wally and the Beef. We don't have a problem in the world, and if we do, we Photoshop it. But if you look closely, we've been dropped out of the U-Haul a few times, haven't we? We've got empty chairs at our table that are breaking our hearts. We've got prodigal sons and prodigal daughters who we don't know where they are at Christmas. We've been dropped and shattered and glued back together and dropped again. And yet, here we are. Every year we get back together. The cast of the nativity reassembles in real time. And we ask ourselves, who is Jesus? To this cacophony of characters. And Matthew said... He is the Prince of Peace. If you think about it theologically, peace is never the absence of conflict. There will never be an absence of conflict in a fallen world. Did you know they don't even have a tree up in Bethlehem right now because it's too dangerous? Peace isn't the absence of drama. Peace is the presence of Christ. What did Christ come to give us? Himself. Peace. Matthew quoted a different part of Isaiah. And he shall be called Emmanuel. God is with us. You know, I think the key in this Christmas season is to invite Jesus into our fractured souls. To invite Jesus into all those dysfunctions that we wish weren't there. To invite Jesus into our disappointment and into our joy. To invite Jesus into the things that horrify us and the things that make us happy. He came because he wanted to be with us, God with us, not God out there somewhere, God with us in our midst, God in it. And that is a gift that we're offered at Christmas. So often we try to fix things they're not going to fix. The task is not to make everything appear right. You just don't have a filter that good. The task is to invite Jesus into the midst of our lives. For where he is, the Prince of Peace rules. I'm going to invite you to pray a Christmas prayer with me. If you just open up your heart to the peace that Christ could bring. I'd like to invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And if you're comfortable, just repeat this Christmas prayer with me. Almighty God, thank you for sending Jesus. He is wonderful. He is our counselor. He is the mighty God. He is our everlasting Father. And He is our Prince of Peace. Almighty God, forgive us of our sin. And give us the grace to forgive those who have sinned against us. 
And give us the grace to forgive ourselves. Jesus, fill our lives. Fill our marriages. Fill our families. And fill this world. Thank you, Prince of Peace. And we pray it in your strong name. And all God's people said, Amen.